These are fun, off-the-cuff discussions on movies and streaming series, both new and old. Together, we'll attempt to bridge the gap between Hollywood Industry Insider and the casual viewer. This is Alec. And I'm Ben. And you're listening to the Cinema A to B Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cinema A to B. Today, Ben and I are going to discuss the 2015 film Mad Max Fury Road by George Miller. This is a special request, and we want to say thank you to Habit for requesting this. But Ben, what are your thoughts on this very late stage sequel? This is it, right? This is the greatest fourth entry film of all time. All time. And it's like, how does this happen? Mm -hmm. How does this happen with this long a layoff, the fourth entry in a good franchise? Mm -hmm. And it just runs circles around every other entry in it and reinvigorates interest in this franchise. And then obviously, like you just mentioned before we started recording, the trailer for Furiosa has just dropped. Yeah. And yeah. with another film, um, the wastelands, I think in kind of stuck in development, but that's, we'll get into that. Cause it's, it kind of has to do with, uh, some of the bad experiences <laughs> shooting, <laughs> shooting this film. Yep. This is incredible. I mean, what 2015 the only other two movies that really stood out to me during that year were the revenant Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. whiplash whiplash is awesome the revenant's good this is this was my favorite from 15 Mm -hmm. it's as enthralling on a repeat viewing as it was the first time i saw it in a theater there's just not there's nothing else like this movie nothing else looks like it nothing else sounds like it it's one of those to me it's kind of sits in the pantheon of what is possible in cinema because it did so much that we we've, we've never seen before. Yeah. It's it's a one of a kind and in some ways it doesn't even feel like it belongs with the Road Warrior or Mad Max or but ultimately that doesn't matter because they've re you know they've recast Max with Tom Hardy. And so it's interesting because that particular series, a reboot's fine. Mm -hmm. Like it's almost, this almost feels like an anthology entry. Like it doesn't, it doesn't need those other movies, but people that went to see it, that knew what they were kind of getting are familiar with the world, which I think helps a lot. I think it was aided by that. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like he had to do a bunch of world building again. Because you knew you knew what what the wasteland looked like and felt like, but this was everything in the Mel Gibson movies taken to a thousand. Yeah, I just recently watched it, and it was the second time I've ever seen this movie, and I remember being stunned in the theater watching it and just walking away, going, "That's a brilliant film, well shot, well liked," and so it was always in my back burner of. I really liked it, but I never went back to it and I don't understand. And I'm, you know, rewatching it for this podcast. And as I'm watching it, I'm just astounded how so well thought out, so well put together, how stunning is the word that continually came back to me that this film is so much thought was put into it. Like, like you said, I mean, we're talking what I think the uh, Mad Max beyond Thunderdome was what uh, late eighties, early nineties, I think at the, mm-hmm. at the, so when you're yeah. talking, you know, 30, you know, over 30 years to come back to this and 
you know, I, I didn't rewatch any of the Mad Maxes before I watched this. And so I don't really remember them. I was never, you know, people may, I was never a huge Mad Max film. For some reason, this kind of post-apocalyptic world was never my favorite. Like I never really got into those movies. So I didn't actually go into this movie expecting much, which I thought maybe that was what kind of made me like it so much in the theaters because I went with low expectations. It obviously more than delivered what I was expecting. But again, on a second view, this is outstanding. And I mean, from beginning to end, from the opening sequence, how they bring you in with kind of the, the max VO into basically all the way to his, basically the chase, the capture, the inside of the cave chase or whatever. And like the reveal all the way up to the title card is just a brilliant way. Like, again, I didn't remember much. I hadn't didn't watch the Mad Maxes so much. So I don't really remember too much of the backstory. I remember bits and pieces, but I didn't feel lost at all. Like I could totally understand where we're coming from. Um, obviously I really think Tom Hardy's fantastic. Theron is also amazing in this. It's just th- like you said, this is the best, best fourth installment of a series ever produced hands down. Like I'll wait for you to show me another, a better one. There's nothing else in there. That's a fourth installment. That's going to be as good as this, where it is, I would say the pinnacle and peak of the series. It's better than every, everything that came before. There's like remembering all the others, this hands down, I'll take this every day. This kind of feels like Blade Runner 20, 2049. The difference being it would, there would have had to have been only one Mad Max movie mm-hmm. made right around the same time. I mean, Mad Max, you know, road warrior and Mad Max are within a year or two of, yeah. of Blade Runner. But yeah, the it's funny because the one that I always watched as a kid that seemed to be on cable all the time was Beyond Thunderdome. Yes. Yeah, that's the one I watched the most. Widely considered the worst entry of the, and I always really liked it. I don't know, there's there was stuff with that movie that kind of resonated with me as a kid and it's because I think it's because he's surrounded by children, but Yeah. That's for that's a whole other discussion. So that was kind of my introduction to the series was that entry just cuz it it seemed like, I guess it was cheap and it ran on cable a lot. Mm-hmm. No, nothing, no, nothing else looks like this. And to me, this is one of the greatest digital color correction jobs mm-hmm. I think I've ever seen. Yeah. It, it was shot on the original area Alexa cameras. And I think they, they shot some sequences with like little Canon DSLRs because they had so much stunt work going on. Mm-hmm. And you'll read about that most of this movie was captured in camera. Yeah. There's a ton of rotoscoping um, and some green screen work and, and heavy compositing. But the we, the reason it looks so good is because about 90% of what he could capture in camera, he went ahead and did. Mm-hmm. And I will say based on what I'm seeing with the new trailer for Furiosa, it looks like he departed from that method because mm-hmm. Furiosa is cool as it looks. It has a much more polished, less realistic looking aesthetic than fury road does. Hopefully it's just that the visual effects are still in development and they just wanted to rush a trailer out and it'll have a look closer to this movie, but we'll see. Yeah. This was one of those movies that came out that, that told me we're okay. Like largely leaving film. Yeah. For select projects. I mean, IMAX not withstanding with what Nolan has done and, you know, 
65 millimeter like widescreen. I think that has its place. But this was the one that when I came out of the theater, I went, yeah, it's it's arrived. Yeah. Like digital acquisition has arrived. If you can get this. This look into a cinema, we're good. Yeah. Because at no point did I watch this and go, oh, this looks I wish this was shot on 35 millimeter film. It just no. it didn't even enter my mind. It was like absolutely not. I want to just want to throw John Seeley or John Seal or however you pronounce your last name, the cinematographer. Because I mean, essentially, for the majority of the movie, he has one color palette to play with: orange and maybe some black. But I'm going to tell you. I mean, as you already talked about, visually, absolutely stunning. The way he layers some of these colors, the way he catches it. And some of it, obviously, is special effects, is VFX, because they did a lot with the uh, Namibia. Um, a lot of the special effects were helping kind of build on what they were already capturing in camera. But I'm just going to tell you, it's absolutely stunning. Like when the sandstorm comes in, I mean, like it's all brown, it's all orange, but yet it is, I, I'm, I'm like, just thinking about it in my head of just how cinematic and how gorgeous it is. I mean, yeah, he's got pops of color here and there, but the majority of the film and I, and last little point, then I'll let you talk about, sorry, but is so many of these stupid Pope, not stupid. I like post-apocalyptic movies, but they're always washed out. They're always something of gray, but yet here you almost get into the oversaturated color aspects of film that it completely changes I mean, even the original Mad Maxes, I remember them not, you know, having some color. I mean, but you're out in the desert in California, Arizona. I forget exactly where they shot. Australia. You know. Australia. Oh, is it Australia? Okay. So I'm, I think I'm at least at least some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the browns, some greens or whatever, but it, it didn't really have the washed out. But it just by definition of where they were shooting, it kind of felt that typical washed out where this is just when you get those pops of color they pop, they resound, they resonate with you for the rest of like when you see some of the green or you see some of the, you know, the, the water and stuff like that, it just, ooh, uh, hands off. He made a post post-apocalyptic film that looks gorgeous. That's what I'm sorry. Yeah, he, he did. And there's, there's a couple reasons for this. I mean, the, the acquisition on the Alexa largely would have been pretty neutral the way the image was acquired. So the the look of the film is largely created in post in the in the color correction. Gotcha. And okay. the art and the art design production design is is really good too. You're right. There is there's a dominant orange or those night sequences are heavy blue, mm-hmm. which normally I would say I don't really like night sequences that are that blue. But for this film, it feels like the correct switch from a daytime that's very orange dominant, but there is, there are other colors in the palette. Like it's not like it's, it's monochrome, but I did want to mention that like I went through on IMDb cause I was kind of curious who the colorists were since that's kind of my jam. Yeah. And you had, so you had a guy named Oliver Farkas that was the dailies colorist. So he would have been establishing some sort of onset look that they would have been able to watch dailies. in. I don't know how, strong that the image looked for, for dailies. But then you had this huge team. This is one of the bigger editorial department teams I've seen. I, I can't count through. It looks like 30 or 40 people. Wow. And unfortunately a ton of them are uncredited and mm. there are, th- there are three colorists that are uncredited on this movie. Mm. And then there is a look development and supervising colorist named Eric whip 
who I'm assuming would have been the main guy sitting with the cinematographer creating this hyper saturated orange look. Yeah. And that they would have had these other three color colorists. And we're going to go ahead and give them their due since they're not credited on the movie. Please. Fortunately, they are on IMDb. Connor Fisher, Trisha Hagarilis, and Wade Odlum. And so they're not credited. Um, there's even a digital cinema mastering for IMAX, Daniel Andre. That was Ooh. his job. And he wasn't credited. Wow. See, this is the stuff that pisses me off. Yeah. And Hollywood does this crap a lot. Where they don't they make decisions. The suits make decisions on who gets to get credited in the movie and who doesn't. Mm. And this sucks. There's, there's seven people on the back end of the editorial department, basically responsible for the way this movie looks. And they weren't in the credits. Mm. I get, I get hot when I see that. So, but I'll get off that horse. The, the look is there's no other film that looks like this. But what's cool is it's not just the look, right? The story is extremely compelling. Mm-hmm. Their performances are really good. <laughs> the character the character arcs are really good. Yeah. You had awesome behind-the-scenes um, set stuff where actors and actresses absolutely hated each other. <laughs> yeah. But somehow <laughs> they get it done and create a masterpiece. And also didn't understand the director. Like, both no. Theron and Hardy are on record basically saying that when they're on set, they were like, George is dumb. Like his, like, I don't get it. This is going to be a terrible movie. Absolutely. They both basically went on record saying after they saw the movie, they go, we owe George an apology because this is a masterpiece that we just couldn't understand at the time of his shooting. Like we couldn't see his vision. And some, and, see, and that's kind of a knock on George because yeah. I'm a big believer that one of the main jobs of a director is to concisely and accurately communicate his vision or her vision to the rest of the crew. Yeah. Because if you have everybody pulling in the same direction, then you usually will get a better product in this case. And here's the thing. And I just looked this up because usually I don't do a ton of prep work. I mean, we've, that's in our intro for crying out loud (laughs) off the cuff. Yeah. (laughs) He shot like 480 hours of footage for this movie. Mm hmm. It took his wife who edited it <laughs> like three, three months. months just to watch all the footage. <laughs> yeah. So that's why, that's why despite him not being able to communicate to them what he wanted, why he was able to get such a good film is because he just shot a absurd amount of material. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, hats off to his wife, you know, he, he better have gotten her a good birthday. Margaret anniversary. Sixel. Yeah. Sixel. Yeah. Fantastic job. Like it's edited so well. And just the story beats and, but I could understand maybe why Theron and Hardy didn't get the, you know, the vision. They probably weren't paying too much attention to George as they were fighting with each other so much. Um, one, cause Hardy is very like everything I've read, everything I've learned about him. He's very physical, very method. He gets into the character, kind of stays in the character. He's got to be that way. Whereas, Theron is not method, very cerebral, kind of really thinks about it. Um, prompt, on, t- on time, all that kind of stuff. Hardy's not. Hardy is so not reliable. Like, I think there was a story that I had read. I remember when it came up, basically, it was like she sat like on set for three hours in the war rig by herself waiting for Hardy to show up. Right. Like it was like for like 8 a.m. It was supposed to be started at 8 a.m. By 11 a.m. He finally rolls up and he like she gets off and like there was they had to get a bodyguard for her. Like there was bad blood between the two of them, um, especially the beginning of shooting. And then much like the kind of the character arc as they progressed 
Hardy warms up to her, you know, like, like in real life, not just in in character. And it's, that's as an actor. And I think they've, I think they've buried the hatchet if I'm not mistaken, but I'm definitely with team Theron here. Three hours late to that's just completely unacceptable, unprofessional. And I don't know that he still operates that way now. I, I have no idea. I would hope he doesn't. And it would blow my mind if Christopher Nolan keeps casting him and he's like continuing to like, there's no way he's three hours late on a Nolan project. Oh, absolutely not. So no way, not a chance. So hopefully he was, I don't know. Hopefully he was just going through some personal stuff and was like just unreliable and like depressed in his trailer that, I mean, that sounds like depression to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does. So I want to cut the guy some slack, but my goodness. Well, it could be, you know, especially method acting, you're wrestling so much with what the character is dealing with itself as you try to get yourself into that or deal with it, that that messes with your head as well. And so, I don't know, like, you know, it's why some of the, you know, method actors don't talk about it. It's why Daniel Day-Lewis got pneumonia on Gangs of New York because he refused to wear a coat that was not his actual costume when he was on set. It was freaking freezing. And so he got pneumonia. Like it's, I understand the desire for the craft, but there's always that story. I tell you many times of what, uh, Lawrence Olivier and, um, Oh my goodness. Why his Dustin Hoffman on marathon, man, I think it was. And like Dustin Hoffman, basically is like running around or slept outside or the, this story changes from wherever you read it, but basically he's hurt, like hurting himself to get in process to the, to the character. And like Lawrence Olivier is like looking at him and just goes, what are you doing? He's like, well, my character's tired or my character's hurt. And so I'm like, I'm trying to get myself into it. And Lawrence Olivier is just like, why don't you just act? And like, and walks away, you know, like, and that's, I mean, and it's as an actor, like it's hard, like if you need to kind of push yourself to get there, to get to that performance, it's different than just saying, oh, well, I need to be sad. So be sad. And you could say one way or the other, many actors have different processes, but you know, obviously Hardy was very method in this and that came out in some of their battles on set and why it made it so, so difficult and probably why they had 470 hours of filming <laughs> because there's probably so many like takes they couldn't, couldn't use. There's yeah, so many things just that are so, just like, mm, this is not, not going to, there's go a lot ahead. of moving pieces in the, in the movie as well for, for action sequences. What I love about the the way George Miller shoots action is that the action's always centered in the frame. Mm-hmm. So it's really easy for the eye to keep track of where things are going and what's happening. And so and then he had his he had Sixel, his wife, edit it um famously because he said he he didn't want a guy editing the action movie because it he felt like it would just look like any other mm-hmm. action film. He wanted her kind of unique spin on it. And I think it does benefit from that. But definitely. Going back to Hardy, Hardy apparently was has been method from the beginning because mm-hmm. that terrible Star Trek movie where he plays like Picard's clone. Yes. Um, Patrick Stewart famously said that that Hardy was like super antisocial and would just come to set, do his thing and then go back to his trailer. Wouldn't have dinner with anybody. Wouldn't say hi to anybody. And I have to assume that was just him going full method. Cause that character was super unlikable anyway. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I don't have to work with these people. I, but I don't care for the whole method thing. I, I definitely side with, was it Kurt Russell who famously is just like, this is ridiculous. Like you, yeah. you walk in front of the camera, you hit your mark and you say your lines like how, this is not yeah. rocket science. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, and I say all this, but Tom Hardy is 10 times the actor that I ever was or ever will be, but you know, no, he, he is, some... he is, he's, he's good. Thanks. Um, I appreciate that. I appreciate that yeah. you really agreeing with me really quickly on how terrible of an actor I am. <laughs> no, compared to I agree. He's a good actor. I don't know that he's, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know. You certainly don't mumble like Tom Hardy. No, that's true. That's true. <laughs> you don't mumble yeah. your way through dialogue the way he kind of famously does, but. Um, so I'm yeah. going to go back to, to the action sequences because we kind of talked about this briefly, but uh, I like, you know, like you said, center in the frame. One of the things too, is he is George Miller and obviously Siskel do a lot of j- not jump cuts, but quick cuts when in, in, in the action. Right. However, they're not close up cuts, like especially in that opening sequence when he's breaking out of kind of his imprisonment is a lot of stuff happens really quickly. However, I wouldn't say they're medium shots, but they're definitely not the super close up. Like where you don't like, you know, exactly what's happening in the frame of each second of what, like the step-by-step process. And again, it, going back and harp on Paul Greengrass or whoever it was like, it's definitely not that feeling of it where it's quick, but it, it jolts you into it. I also like a lot of the actual fight sequences when it's like hand to hand combat or like in person it has to have some type of higher frame rate, especially when it's uh, Max and Furiosa meet for the first time or whatever. And they're kind of doing that fighting because it's the frame rate is sped up in some way. It just feels quick but it works like just it kind of pushes that feeling of how serious this is how dangerous this world is how kill or be killed this world is and i really love kind of that and again this the the visuals and then are stunning it's literally on sand against a black truck but yet somehow characters pop somehow this looks so visually stunning and interesting the entire time yeah, I mean, it's really high contrast. And then you, you mentioned it, the saturation is effectively maxed. Yeah. Like you can't, I don't think you could saturate the image any more than they have, but it, no. it, what's crazy to me, and this is how you know that you've got professional colorists and stuff working on this, is that the fact that even if your TV at home's not perfectly dialed in, this movie still looks incredible. Yeah. Like it, it looks good on a computer monitor, a phone, a projector. And you're perfectly dialed in, you know, 70 inch OLED. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's proof positive. You got professionals doing this that know exactly where to push the image and how much to push it and then have it all feel cohesive. They may have recorded higher frame rate. I don't know. You can also achieve that effect by changing the shutter speed or the shutter Mm -hmm. angle of the camera, because that's, that's famously what saving private Ryan did was tweak the shutter angle Still was recording 24 frames a second, but you get more particles and stuff that you get. The eye can see mm-hmm. it's like a, it's a more, I don't know. It's, it's like a more vivid movement kind of stunted, but you can tend to see more particles and things when explode. And so it's possible he did some of that as well. But I, I remember um, the earlier Mad Max movies, him doing like speed ups during action sequences as well, like where he'd ramp things up. Yep. Not as much slow-mo, although this movie does have plenty of slow motion yeah, and it's, and it's beautiful, but you're right. The camera's further back in this film and really allows, I mean, when they're driving into that dust storm, the camera's never any more close up on than like framing what, like, you know, say, was it Nicholas Holt as the, one of the, the minions that's mm-hmm. yeah. spraying his face. The, um, what <laughs> I forget called? his name, but even the stuff he, on oh, him in the car he's is like Nox or Vox yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Nux. Nux. 
Yeah, he's really or, he's really good too. Oh, he's fantastic! And <laughs> yeah, but and I like his arc as well. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me to tell like whose movie is this because they definitely jockey back and forth. By the end of the movie, it almost feels like Furiosa's movie mm-hmm. as far as where the the story kind of goes and the way it ends. But that's always kind of been Max never settles in in anywhere. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's interesting to me that it took him so long to do a. A sequel, or I mean, this is more of a prequel, obviously, because of the way they set up the last couple shots that they set up the ending of this film was it's perfectly set up for a sequel to follow, you know, Max. Like, again, this is definitely much more Furiosa's kind of movie of her getting to where she needs to be. And then Max is still out there kind of doing his thing to to do more movies. But yet, obviously, you know, it's eight, eight years later and we're getting a prequel, not a not a sequel, not a Mad Max follow-up. And I mean, some of that's obviously the kind of that, that script you said that's kind of been in the, you know, being punted around trying to figure out when it's going to get made. But I think Hardy's schedule is kind of all over the place as well. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know that he's that interested in returning to the the character either. I mean, I, I don't know. He's perfect for that role. Like I, he is, I absolutely love him in that role as Max. And I love the fact, I know that a lot of people when it came out harped on the fact that he doesn't talk much. Like this is really like, I think he's got 52 lines. If you don't count the grunts or something like that, I think that's like the trivia on it or something. (laughs) But I mean, but think about it. Like from all the things, like he's a loner, like he doesn't talk that much. Like he does, you know, why? Like you don't need to, if you can get, you know, things at the point of a gun or get your point across with just like my favorite is like when he's in the, um, in the cab or whatever. And he's like, like trying to get all the guns or, or whatever. And there's ones out of reach, but he's still kind of pointing his gun on Furiosa. And so he's like looking at the wives and he's just like snapping his fingers or whatever. I'm like, like they all know what he wants. They all like, there's no need. Like he doesn't do anything superfluous. He, if he doesn't need to speak or waste water or waste breath, he's not going to do it. Um, but uh, again, that whole, he, we talked about the method, but like he, it does portray of like, he gets across that he cares only about himself and he only cares to survive. Like he will do whatever it takes to survive. He like absolutely nothing, nothing cares. And I love the, even with all the problems, the interplay between the two of them of that, like when push came to shove, when it's, I need to still save my life, but I need Furiosa to, to, to be there to help save my life or whatever, the way they work together, the way they kind of like, it's kind of one of those things of they hate each other, but yet they're both super competent and super know what needs to be done to get this across. And I kind of think some of that onset hatred of each other really comes through in the camera and makes that, that work makes that feeling come through. I'm not trying to say like, Hey, that was okay. I'm totally like you on this on team Theron, but my goodness, it, it works like it. You could feel the, I got to work with this person. I hate this person. I'm, you know, at a drop of a hat, I would kill this person, but yeah, but there are seeds of humanity still left in mm-hmm. max in the movie, yeah. tr- little traces that the kind of the, the wives of, uh, the Morton Joe kind of bring out in him those little, especially the, the gal that's, that's pregnant. Yeah. They, they kind of, it kind of, sparks a little something in him a little bit of humanity that he has left yeah because his whole backstory was like a lost wife and child in the 
ensuing fall of society. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that he'll, I don't think Miller's got a good reason to ever go back and do like a redo prequel to no. Max. I think, I think his history is firmly established. There's just no real reason to do that. I I'm kind of intrigued with Furiosa, you know, on an arc that gets her to kind of where she is when we kind of pick up with her hmm. at the beginning of Fury of Road. I that that's interesting. Um I, I just hope get- it has the aesthetic that that this does as far as it looking a little grittier. Cuz it just did it looked that trailer looks awfully clean and I was trying to figure out is it cuz I'm watching it on my 4K monitor and or and I was like no this just looks like they shot more against green screen it just looks a little little more cgi heavy than the than this film does so they've yeah. got time i don't even remember it, what the release is it, it's 24 but i don't remember the release I, date um i also gotta want to say one thing or not one thing but continue on this conversation about this this movie but the music is amazing like it, it, it's funny to me because i listen to this soundtrack many times like it's on my regular rotation i've got multiple tracks from the soundtrack in my little like film scores playlist or whatever that i love i've listened to the soundtrack probably 10 times more than i've seen this movie like it's it's ridiculous because it's just that good i mean obviously um the guy who did it was also has done like deadpool like he did he's in a lot of the dc marvel or not not marvel but the dc movies like i think he did justice league batman versus mm-hmm. superman yeah. And he also did Terminator Dark Fate, which, well, that's a movie for another discussion. But the music in it is is really well done. Like this guy really nailed it. I mean the the moment of like the war party going through and they they first kind of um, like the first kind of interaction kind of at that stone gate thing or whatever. The music there is just stunning. And then the moments that and you know, Laura and I kind of were talking about this, like the moments of silence uh, where they choose not to have music, where they choose not to have dialogue, but just kind of the ambient noise of the world of the, the war rig is just makes it that much more stunning. Cause the music in it is so loud is so kind of pushing things forward that it just makes those moments of quiet, just that much more quiet. Um, and I think it, it rolls into, cause a lot of that quiet is at night when they're rolling around kind of going through the swamp where that blue is kind of that change of like, you know, I, I, I really likened it to it. You know, obviously it's super hot during the day, orange, it's super cool. Everything kind of relaxes, calms down, gets prepped for the next day. And like that kind of have that same feeling in the movie too. I mean, obviously there's things that happen at night um, as well, but like overall it's definitely quieter um, in those night moments, those blue moments. I can't say enough good things about this film. The fact that I've only watched it twice, I'm appalled at myself because this movie is stunning. Like, and now you got more opportunities. Yeah. To, yeah. Well, to then honestly, the next time, next time I want to see this is like, I want to be, you know, watching on your big screen downstairs so I can like get that kind of that, mm-hmm. that visual yeah. again, you know, because, oh my goodness, like it benefits from a bigger, as big a screen as you does. can put it on. It really it does. does. Yeah. The, um, I can't think of a more decorated and I'm not a big awards guy, but we still mention it, but I can't think of a more decorated action film than this one. I mean, it took home six Academy Awards, 10 nominations. Yes. Ten. Yeah. It was nominated for best for picture of the year. 
Yeah, and and best achievement in directing, which frankly I think he probably should have won. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think Revenant won best best directing and best picture, but I have lots of problems with that film. Yeah, we. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> but yeah, no, it won. It wins for best best editing, costume design, makeup and hairstyling, sound mixing, sound editing. Vis- uh, should have won visual effects. I don't know how it was just a nominee. I don't know what it lost to. And then it won um, production design. So most any technical category that it could have taken, it took. It had a, it had some good stuff going up against it. I mean, because I think Spotlight won Best Picture. You also had The Martian, which I think, well, at some point we need to talk about that movie because we will. I, I, I love that movie. I mean, you had The Big Short, but I mean, out of all those, Mad Max is definitely the most visually stunning. I think has some of the best story arcs and stuff. But I think, I mean, that's one, one of those things we talk about with, with the Academy. It's, it's an action film. It's not going to happen. You know, they like dramas. They like biographies, comedies and action or superhero movies, sci-fi films. Not going to make it very rarely. If it well, does, this is a, this is a biopic. It's, it's about, it's, it's, a Mad, it's about, Mad, it's about <laughs> Mad Max. You see, that's how they should have pitched it to, to fake the Academy. This is, it's about Max. It's a biopic. No, absolutely. Just, just be quiet. Stop talking. This is, <laughs> uh, okay. So best achievement in visual or effects. Biopic. Went, went biopic. To, biopic. Didn't we get, I remember we got, biopic. I got, we got hate mail one time for <laughs> how I pronounced whether I did biopic <laughs> or biopic or not. It was pretty funny. <laughs> I can't remember That's which funny. movie that was, but. Uh, was it Oppenheimer? It could have been. I don't know. It could have been. It was, it was. Uh, it was a hater on YouTube. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, Ex Machina was the one that won for best visual oh. effects. Under undervalued and underrated film. I think. Yeah, it is. Hands it down. is. But it I, shouldn't. Have, it shouldn't no. have beat it over this. No, no, come on. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. I, I mean, I really enjoy that film, but this is so much. More. I mean, I think probably some of it was because Ex Machina has so much more visual effects, where this doesn't. True. You know, since so much were in. Uh, mm-hmm. in camera, but my goodness, my goodness. Uh, fun fact, fun fact. So the guitarist guy on mm-hmm. the, the war. So he actually is like a real guitarist or whatever. And he was up there. The guitar weighed 132 pounds and the flames that came out of it were real. Like he actually activated. Oh, they looked, the, yeah. The gas wow. power, like that's the gas powered flames. Terrifying. Yeah. yeah that's like, terrifying yeah. to have to operate that thing. And, he, and he's on wires too. It's not like he's just standing there like in safety. Like he's, well, and he's, he's got that mask on as well. So like, yeah, he couldn't have seen very well no. out of that. Well, no. hopefully there was all flame retardant stuff or flame flame proof, but yeah, like that, those were legit flames. Like that's great. Like, again, this is the, the kind of the, the cool bits of the composite work, or at least the stuff that he could capture in camera and add to it. But my goodness, like, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of fun. I'm glad we talked about this because I, again, I'm appalled at myself that I have not watched this more like this. I have to now rethink like my top 100 movies. Cause this has got to be in, in there. If you not should, even, yeah, you not, should not, not, not even like, I, like, I don't know where this ranks. Like I have to like go back and be like, okay, what gets kicked off? Because just throw it into flick chart. I, I actually do see, need to and, do that. Yeah. And, and, and throw and, it into flick chart and just see what it comes up against and whether you pop it up. I mean, oh it's not God. a perfect, no. it's not a perfect way to go. 
By the way, we are not sponsored by Flickchart. I just, no. it's a cool way to load movies in that you've seen and kind of pit them against each other. But Flickchart, if you're looking for people to be sponsored, you want to sponsor, hey, we're <laughs> <Yeah>. open to <laughs> it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. So, uh, last thoughts? Like, what do you... Like I think we've covered this, so much. My last thought is that this one's going to be around for a long time. Like this thing's going to sit because of the way it was shot with all the practical effects. It's going to age better than most movies of the yeah. era. It's, it's eight years old and I have every confidence that in another 10 years, it will be still heralded. And probably 10 years after that, I, I think this thing will largely stand the test of time. I think it's going to age very, very well. And then uh, as society devolves, it's going to get relabeled as a documentary. <laughs> and then it's going to win best picture because yeah, then the Academy will be like, submit it for a documentary. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness. Oh. They should have well, just subtitled it and then resubmitted it as for best foreign language film or something. Yeah. Well, so there was a moment in time that George Miller actually wanted to do this all in black and white. And I think there's a, there is a version out there that's all black and white. Um, so had they done that, you know, maybe it would have gotten a little bit more attention because black you're and white films make, always- You're going to make me want to see what this is like when I, if I- Well, and I wonder how, if they shot it for black and white, because I think it was pretty early on in the process that, that he wanted to do a black and white and they were like, No. And so then he went the opposite direction was like, then I want all the colors and the world. It's high contrast um, enough that it would, it would benefit. Work from out, a, you think so? Mm-hmm, yeah. There's a lot of shadow yeah. and negative, what they call negative fill where That's, the image is goes dark. Like it, the, those things tend to be more beneficial when you pull the color out. So I, I have yeah. no doubt that it would look good. The thing is I can't do that on my projector because it's a, it's a DLP projector. And <sighs> the, the weakness of DLP is that, especially with bright and dark with black and white, you get the rainbow effect, mm-hmm. which some people can see and some people can't see it. I can see it in the high contrast scenes. Mm-hmm. And so if you bled the color, I would just be distracted with a little bit of <laughs> rainbow fringing on the image, but <laughs> well, otherwise it's a word, probably a worthy exercise. Just like when we uh, discussed the black and white of Raiders. Oh my goodness. Who knows? It's this all- thing could be, well, I th- maybe we'll have to get a get a copy of it and watch it next time I'm out or something, or next time you're, next time we're together, we we can then see which one we like better. For sure, for sure, yeah, for sure. Any uh, any closing thoughts? No, not. I mean, honestly, like kind of, we just touched on it, but like I would think that uh, again, going to the cinematographer, the color colorist, or whatever, but the use of light and shadow in this film is, I mean, it's almost like a masterclass of almost in some ways back to kind of very film noir. We get the the, you know, the rays of light coming through, especially early on. But again, we've already talked about the visuals. They're stunning. The story's great. This goes, if you haven't seen this movie, go see it. It's, it's excellent. It's excellent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a, it should, it's deserving to sit on a lot of best of lists Mm -hmm. and this wouldn't be far outside of my top 10 at all. It's yeah. probably top 25, I would think. Yeah, I don't know. Re, I've, yeah, I don't, I don't usually rank past the top 15, but on my favorites, but yeah, it's up there. Well, we appreciate everybody listening in on another episode as we discussed Talk Shop on uh, Mad Max Fury Road. And if you haven't seen this movie, watch it as soon as you can. And if mm-hmm. it's been a while, I think you're in for another treat. 
Yeah. And so thanks again for listening. We'll, uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode and have a great week. Thanks everybody.